Since 2007, the Paul Meredith team at CityCan Financial has prided themselves on providing a better mortgage experience than you'll get anywhere else. Paul and his team will guide you through the home financing process with professional quality advice, exceptional service, and mortgage rates tailored to meet your specific needs. Their goal is to treat all of their clients the same way they would if they were doing a mortgage for their own mothers. They want to provide you with a wow experience with your mortgage from industry-leading low rates to giving their clients the rock star treatment. The Paul Meredith team would love to have the opportunity to help you out on your next mortgage and show you why they have over 300 five-star reviews on Google. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home, a podcast where we look at all the wonderful things that are happening in the world to prevent and end homelessness, where the challenges are at, uh, and all the wonderful people that are doing the work. One of those wonderful people that is leading the work is my co-host and colleague from the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. How are you, Stefania? Oh, I'm good. That is giving me so much more grace than I deserve, but I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm doing okay. Things are what they are right now. You know, the pandemic fog, the exhaustion that's hitting all of us, um, you know, the patients going down. But yeah, day by day, just making it through and just staying dedicated to the work. I think it's really helping. Um, how are you doing? Good, good. Our team at Blue Door, I think you mentioned the fatigue, you know, it's, uh, it is everywhere. Uh, we've been fortunate that many of the staff and clients have received the vaccine and are continuing to work through some of the challenges around misinformation that uh, unfortunately, as we've heard, you know, through our guests on this podcast, sometimes uh, affects how many people will actually take advantage of getting the vaccine. So we continue to work through that. The good folks at uh, Blue Door, are, are doing that. And unfortunately, numbers are continuing to climb. And not only do they climb, but for the most vulnerable, you see it more and more. And so we're, we're working our hardest to make sure that doesn't happen in York region. Oh, absolutely. That's so great. So what can you tell us uh, about our two guests today, which is really exciting uh, that we have uh, two people on? Yeah, yeah, it's so wonderful. Um, I was actually slightly involved in some of the work that they were doing, uh, mainly just to hear about it and uh, was fascinated with it. So I was so uh, excited when they said they would come on. And so today we have Nicholas Ridiculous, who's a veteran of the child welfare industry. By way of arts and creative thought, he hopes to better understand the world and its inequities, forever trying to capture the elusive lightning that strikes the line between the haves and the have-nots. So awesome to have Nicholas here. And along with, uh, you can't see it listeners, but Nicholas is doing a little dance. So, and I wish you could see it because it's awesome. Uh, Along with Nicholas, we have Michelle German, who is the Vice President of Policy and Strategy at Wood Green Community Services, where she leads the organizational uh, public affairs work and is working closely with colleagues 
to add an additional 2,000 new units of affordable housing, wow, uh, to the city of Toronto over the next 10 years. That is amazing, Michelle. Uh, Michelle has a history of working with broad uh, coalitions to advance systems change both inside of government and outside on issues such as housing affordability, food security, regional transportation. She's dedicated to building a more equitable city and building the evidence and partnerships to make it happen. So it is awesome to have them both here. And they are both here today to talk about a new report called uh, New Housing Models for Youth Transitioning Out of Care. And it was a Solutions Lab roadmap. Uh, Nicholas and Michelle, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having us. So nice to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. Really appreciate taking the time. Yeah, I'm really excited to dig into this report. Um, I think we're going to start alphabetically here. That was instead of a, a coin flip. But so I'm going to start with you, Michelle. Um, can you walk us through how this report came to be and what was the driving need for this type of work, a report? Right. So this report came out of actually a national movement called Making the Shift. Uh, which is a group of organizations all across Canada who have joined together to end youth homelessness. And this has manifested in many different kinds of uh, programs and projects right across the country. Uh, here in Toronto, we have a program called Free to Be uh, that's led by Wood Green Community Services, where, where I am currently employed. Um, and the whole program is around working with uh, young people who are aging out of the foster care system to, you know, identify the things they need to, to thrive in, in, as they enter into adulthood. Um, and it's no surprise to us in the program, and it should probably be no surprise to many of you uh, listening to this podcast about housing, is that a disproportionate number of these young people end up homeless. Uh, in fact, roughly 47% of homeless youth have experience in the foster care system. Um, so when we were presented with an opportunity through CMHC to explore, you know, they have the solutions lab program that's like, you know, let's, let's think differently to solve complex problems. And this was a very complex problem uh, that we were seeing on the front lines. You know, we're working with young people who are going into university, getting jobs, raising young kids, uh, and the issue of housing uh, and the right kind of housing was just so persistent that we thought, gee, this is something that is going to take a lot of time and energy to tackle, and, it, and it's certainly worth uh, bringing together uh, a group of partners to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, as we know, uh, youth homelessness and, and the foster care system are absolutely pipelines into chronic homelessness, um, where it's, you know, the, the younger uh, someone experiences homelessness, the more likely they and more harder it is to get out of it. Um, as they get older. So I think it's so important that we focus on those barriers and, and fix them. Um, so Michelle, again, I'm I just just uh, to circle back and, and, and maybe expand a bit more on, uh, as you touched on, um, the urgency of the problem and um, that you're trying to solve with this work. Right. So I, I think the urgency would be, you know, between 800 and 2000 homeless youth are reported in, in the city of Toronto each night. Um, so combine that with this very critical moment when young people are exiting the foster care system and, you know, 
think back to when you were 19, 20 years old, there's so much going on in your life. You're trying to figure out who you are. Your, your brain is just finally forming completely. Um, so the urgency is, is catching people before um, they become homeless uh, because it's so traumatizing to even be homeless for one night if you just put on top of chronic. And then the huge number. Um, so both the percentage of the population and the number of people each night, it's, it's, it, you know, it's one of those things that, that is heart-wrenching. So for us, we said, let's tackle this. Um, there are some options for young people in this, in this grouping, um, but there aren't necessarily many options. So the other part that made this quite urgent was what is the ideal housing scenario? You know, what, where is it located? What programs is it connected to? And how is it designed? Which is something that's quite a unique feature of this program. Um, because we brought together uh, really premier architects from uh, Partisans, which is a sort of a world-renowned architecture firm. Uh, Nicholas is, is currently uh, pointing to the sign there because he's he's working there currently, which is amazing and an amazing on you know we didn't see that coming. Uh, so that was a great opportunity that that Nicholas was was able to create his build his network and and get into the uh, like now our colleagues, which is amazing. Um, so joining design and program and community services and development uh, was a really unique uh, new lens that we brought to this urgent problem. And what you were just saying there really spiked something in my mind. It's great to have all those different pieces in, but you also did something around the voices of people with lived experience. And so Nicholas, you know, having the, the voices of lived experience, why is it important to have uh, those voices at the center of this type of work? Just off the bat, if any help you're trying to offer these youth feels like what they're trying to escape from, then they'd prefer to be homeless. You know, it's it's um, uh, it's it's about allowing, like, it's a, at least like reclamation of power and just building yourself and understanding your own healing because you're helping others to heal through the same thing you're healing. So it's like, it's a leading by example is the most basic core idea of it, where it's like, if you see other youth who've gone through what they have gone through, helping to manifest this thing that's helping them, then they're going to feel more inspired to actually become a part of it rather than just more of the same, which is some, a term I use a lot in this project. So, thank you. Sorry, Michael, I think you skipped a question, but I'll, I'll ask it, I'll hop in. Um, so, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, Nicholas, can you talk to us about how you got involved in the report and why um, it's so important to you just to expand on that on that piece as well? That actually started probably back in 2016 when I um, helped create the Free to Be program at Wood Green Social Services, and that kind of tied me to the program. And I made friends with the program, or who was running the program at the time, Eric Wexler. Me and him are still very close friends. And this, when you like, I'm a product of this system, so it's in me to do what I have to or do what I can to 
make it better in some way, you know, hold the reflection up to them so they can see all their pockmarks and whatnot. It's, uh, and it was, it was honestly Puya. Puya was the one who, because I joined the design charrette that was last fall or su end of the summer. And that was in this room actually with a bunch of other youth with lived experience. And we were just, were brainstorming what these, housing typologies could be or what they would look like or what what is something we would you know actually be a part of and it was from there that I spoke with like Puya pulled me aside privately and we had a long conversation in um, a separate room that was just just about you know the experience of what it means to create a space where transitional youth can actually feel safe enough to unpack their baggage reclaim their personal power and work to rebuild themselves and something within that conversation sparked Puya, I guess. And a few weeks later, he just called me and offered me a job to do this in a real term and not just on a, hey, come in once every once in a while and we'll offer you some money here and there. And it was an actual, he offered me a legitimate role and like an equal part in creating this thing. So it was very, it was very inspiring and a very big move on him to take this co-design and co-production to a whole new real level beyond just surface dwelling, I guess. And now here I am at the end of my contract with Partisans. We worked a lot on the roadmap and the roadmap came out and bada bing bada boom. Well, that's that's so awesome. And it sounds like a little bit like it's come full circle. Um, that's that's so exciting. Um, so so this next question is for both of you. So maybe again, like just alphabetically, we'll start with Michelle, but Nicholas, I, I really want you to weigh in too. Um, so, so the question is kind of circling back to the report as well is what for you were the key takeaways and learnings <clears throat> from this report? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Uh, I think the biggest one for me is that when you're creating housing for a certain group of people who have complex needs, which frankly is most people, it's really a process, not a product. So throughout this, you know, we, we were doing a research report, but really what we were doing was reimagining what housing for, for youth um, coming out of the foster care system could and should look like and really putting out a, a best in class model. And just the process of listening to young people about their experiences, <coughs> pardon me, uh, listening to architects from all over the world who have worked on a variety of different pro uh, programs and projects, um, investigating and speaking with different service providers, uh, understanding the, the nature of development in, in the areas you know, across Canada that we actually wanna see this housing get built. Um, all of that was a process. It took time. Uh, it took uh, a lot of patience. Um, it took dedication and a number of staff on the team to, to really think it through. Um, and at the end of the day, we're putting forward, you know, models that we believe are actionable, but they wouldn't have been possible to create without, you know, everybody involved, like Puya on the architecture side, Nicholas um, from the lived experience side, uh, Woodgreen from the services side. Um, so we were able to put out these three typologies, which are detailed in the report. So I, I encourage everybody to pick it up and read it. And there are three models of housing that we think are realistic. Um, you know, they can be incorporated into communities that already exist. Uh, they can link up to services that are already up and running. Um, and they meet the needs of, of you know, 
of what youth actually want to see from the design and program and a, a space perspective. So really housing is a process. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Yeah, and Nicholas, uh, same question. So that was my biggest takeaway, right? Um, okay, so like I got this job and I started this work in lockdown. So it was like, you know, working virtually most of the time. And it's a funny thing to have to research how other people describe your experience. Um, it was it's very hard sometimes just to, I don't know, it's, it's like an amoeba reading about itself in a research report, you know, it's just strange and um, I don't know, it's not to get too negative about it, but it just really made me see the industry of it all, you know, it's, and it makes me question how do we really make things better beyond just glad handing and whatnot, you know, how do we actually empower the youth to reclaim something back that is very hard to get back because you can't go back in time. That don't happen. So to put all your pieces back in the right place and in the right order is it's not easy. And then spend so much time researching how people have attempted to do it. And it's, um, the intent is there, but you know, a lot of times I've seen through my research, the outcomes get lost in it somehow, um, whether it's lack of support or lack of funding or whatever it may be. And a lot of the time it was lack of youth too, because the youth didn't want to be involved in something that just rung so close to what they were trying to run away from, you know? So it's, my biggest takeaway from this is that youth need to be empowered on equal footing. You can't put some, someone through something their entire life and then usurp what you want from them and let them carry on, you know? You can only read so many statistics about these kids before you realize that they're kids. So I think the takeaway is we just need to empower the youth and we need to legitimately find ways to actually collaboratively work together to solve these problems and not just create more of the same. Yeah, yeah thank you so much, Nicholas. That's such a powerful message um, and it's absolutely true. I think it's so important to uh, learn from what we're researching and then actually apply those solutions um, in a meaningful way so that we're, what we're offering isn't more of the same um, or isn't something that, you know, these, these 
folks, uh, our kids, as you say, like wouldn't want anyway, right? We really need to get, we really need to crack the problem. Um, and I'm really glad that you said that. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the collaborative piece too, because um, it kind of goes into my next question um, for you, Michelle, uh, about talking about why partnership is so critical for success um, in building youth transitional housing and what a good partnership model uh, looks like to Wood Green. Right, so I would say just starting from the conceptual stage, partnership is important because really what we're doing is testing whether something will work in the real in the real world. So if we can come out with a set of ideas that the community service sector like uh, youth, like um, the government is interested in, the private sector is excited about, um, then we're basically kind of taking away some of the politics and some of the things that need to be negotiated when you're trying to implement the idea. So partnerships from the beginning, and you know, we had an advisory committee that Michael sat on with, with a whole host of people um, you know, coming from those different perspectives that were able to give us feedback throughout the whole project. Um, and we, were, we had a couple of sort of public, I say public because they were all virtual um, engagements with a variety of people from all different sectors throughout the project as well. And really what those kinds of partnerships allowed us to do was just take everything we were thinking on a test drive and see if we were able to get where we were going. So then as we move into implementation where, where we're trying to get to now, so essentially we've come out with these three new models and we're trying to find a location where we can do this. Um, and so one, partnerships is really important because when you're building housing that has to be so specialized and has to be so specific uh, for so many reasons, everyone needs to be invested. And so, you know, working with partisans, you know, who generally, I think they designed, um, you know, uh, restaurants and they've designed, uh, you know, transit stations, they've done all sorts of things, but now they're truly invested and they understand the needs of young people uh, exiting the foster care system and they've gotten to know them and they've gotten, you know, Nicholas is a great example of that. Um, so they're now invested in the outcome of the project because it's not just, you know, slap some bricks up and put a door on. Um, there's a lot of uh, particular things that we need to keep in mind when we're building this kind of housing. So as we move towards implementation, partnerships are super important um, because we're really going to rely on everyone to put everything they have, you know, the realities of land costs and construction costs mean that it's hard to do good things because things are so expensive. Um, and really we look to everyone to leverage whatever resources they have, um, whether it's time, whether it's expertise, whether it's you know grants from government, whether it's land that we're leveraging. Um, and in those ways, we'll be continuing to look for partnerships uh, with if we're building something with a developer, if we're retrofitting something with an architecture firm, with government, if we're able to access grants with other community agencies um, to make sure that the right systems and programs are in place. Um, and of course, with young people to make sure we're on the right track and, and we're putting together something that uh, they would feel safe and happy to live in. Partnerships definitely are um, the best way to move things forward. And Nicholas being one of the partners in this project, Nicholas, what would you like to see in the way of changes in transitional housing for youth in the future? 
Um, well, I just spent six months writing about it, so I should have some ideas, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Let's hear it. Um, well, honestly, it's the idea of co-production rather than co-design, because co-design sees the youth used more as um, resources, whereas co-production is led by the youth themselves and everyone else is those extended pieces. So I think when we find the way for the youth to come together and do what we need to do to, let me start over, let me start over. I believe the true way to make amazing transitional housing for youth is, I always imagine it like a, like an old buddy cop movie, but instead of two cops, it's a lived experience expert who is more of a social pedagogue and a social service worker. And together they create a partnership that I feel would be the best way to propel youth beyond their hardships. So however we think to get there or aim to get there, but I just feel like that's the real partnership that we haven't found a way to truly unify yet because it's still kind of, um, it's not an equal partnership yet. Somehow we have to balance, balance the levels back out. Cause that's the only way, cause it's like, you know, when you want to help youth of a certain culture, let's say, it's usually their culture that helps them, right? So it's, it's that understanding and that experience that's really gonna help them. Because if, if you haven't really experienced what someone has experienced, you know, you can't fully pull them out of that hole, I feel like, because you just don't know how deep it is. So, uh, yeah, I just, again, the, the amplification of the partnerships on the front lines of what we're trying to do here is the way forward, I feel. Awesome. Thank you. Michelle, what are your, what are your thoughts? What do you want to see in the way of changes for transitional housing? Yeah, um, I want to see an elevation of standards. Um, I think, you know, going through this research and looking at sort of the best in class examples in Canada and in, in other countries, you know, we looked across Europe and, and in the States, there's no reason that transitional youth can't be beautifully designed um, and be safe and be in great neighborhoods where, where young people wanna live. Um, I think oftentimes um, when we're talking about supportive housing, transitional housing, affordable housing, you know, subsidized and all that, um, they, it gets relegated to let's find a place that no one else wants to use. Let's leverage land on the outskirts of town. Um, but I actually would like to call in, you know, let's look and see what's in our neighborhood on our street, um, you know, close to the subway. These are young people entering adulthood. And I mean, and it's a great example of, of all transitional housing, we should be calling them in. Um, and what this report was able to show is you can, you don't have to sacrifice design and, and look and feel for, um, for cost, right? You can use modular construction, which is way less expensive than pouring concrete. You can retrofit single family homes. Um, you can add laneway homes in them. There's all sorts of things you can do when you get creative. Um, and 
it can, it can feel great. Uh, and when you're at that time in your life, when you're trying to figure out who you are, you should be in a place that you feel safe um, and is frankly cool and near the places that you want to spend time and near the services that you want to access. That's, that's so great. And I totally agree. Um, and I just like want to shout this report from the rooftops and the work that you're both doing. Uh, so in order to do that for our listeners, like where, and this is open to both of you, where can people find your work uh, and learn more about the report and, and what you're doing? I, our report is posted on the, the woodgreen.org website. Uh, we have the long report, which has all the details and appendices. And so if you're a super nerd like me, you can go in and, and look at all the design precedents as we found. Um, but you know, if, if you don't have as much time, we have an executive summary uh, as well on, the, on our website and a blog that summarizes it all. Uh, so it's, it's very accessible uh, and we invite you to read it and share it. And hey, if you're a developer or a nonprofit out there and you're interested in advancing this, then just give me a call because uh, we'd love to see these ideas implemented all over the place. Um, it's not just for us, we did it. And I think CMHG wanted us to do it because there's a need right across Canada and the ideas that we're putting forward uh, could take place in your neighborhood. Now it's me. We're doing sign-offs now, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we totally could. Or if you, yeah, if you want to give a shout out to the partisans work or. Yeah, like yeah. do I do my plugs here? So I'm just. Totally, yeah. yeah okay. Um, yeah, I just have my script because I have a podcast of my own. It's called The Hurt Circus. It's about, it's my, my self-therapy just to understand my experience in my past. But. I've been your guest, Nicholas Ridiculous, a.k.a. Nick Ridick, a.k.a. The Purple Hyena. You can hit me up on Instagram at Nicholas Ridiculous, www.nicholasridiculous.ca, and all my links are linked there. So. Awesome. That's fantastic. Um, thank you both. And Nicholas, um, just so you know, so it was great to hear you talk about Eric. Wexler is a friend of mine as well, a great guy. We have some great conversations and uh, a previous guest as well talking about... Uh, free to be in his work at Woodgreen. It was a pleasure to have you both on the show. We are so grateful for the work uh, that you're both leading and for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure coming on here. Yeah, thank you all for having us. Really appreciate the opportunity. And Stefania, thank you for stepping in when I missed an entire question. <laughs> Much appreciated. And, and, you know, as listeners can appreciate when you're staring at each other over Zoom, saying, no, you go, you go, you know, um, <laughs> without saying anything. <laughs> and it, it clearly was me uh, having a bit of a, a COVID brain moment there. So thanks for uh, stepping in to uh, make things uh, move forward. Wow. Another oh, yeah. great couple of guests. Eh? Yeah, no, I, I think youth homelessness is so incredibly important uh, to address uh, because it would, it would mean so much of uh, the population that we see of people, um, you know, living on the streets or living in housing precarity uh, would be dealt with, you know, like it would be um, solved. It would be such a smaller problem to solve um, because there are so many barriers for, for youth, uh, like a 15 year old can't go rent an apartment, even if they're working, there's just, you know, our policies, the way we've set up our system, just doesn't work for youth, because the assumption is that all youth are taken care of in their homes. And, you know, if we were to think that way, you know, 
how old is the average kid today moving out of their family home? It's like 29, 30, you know, when we look at the averages and, and we're kicking kids out, out of the system at 18. Um, and, and no one's ready at 18 uh, to be completely left on their own. So I just think this report is so important, um, centering Nicholas uh, and, and folks with lived experience of the foster care system of homelessness from a young age is so key um, because you just can't build anything if you don't have the right folks at the table. So this is just a good example of, of how things can be done. Yeah, sorry, sorry to go on. I just like so excited. Uh, <laughs> to have them on. I just wanted to skip past your crazy mistake. <laughs> I, I can't. I'm going to be living with it forever. Um, <laughs> I love the piece too, though. It, it, I love talking about you don't have to sacrifice design. And, and quite often, yeah. you know, when, even whether it's youth or adult, when people will describe to me, hey, mm -hmm. a shelter, which I don't really even like the word shelter, someone's home, even if it's for a day, it's someone's home. But you know, if you tell me, if I described to you 30 bunk beds in a concrete room, what is that? Most people say a prison, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's not a home. No. So, so let's make sure that we have equal opportunities out there, that we have beautiful designs that are influenced by the people that are going to be spending time in them to say, hey, uh, Mike, old man, maybe you'd enjoy that kind of design, but uh, not for us. Um, and so <laughs> that's what you get yeah. when you don't involve people like Nicholas uh, mm -hmm. in the team there. So it, it's great to see all the partnerships involved in this kind of work happening. It's very important uh, and gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, me too. Everyone has the right to live in dignity and we need to make sure that's that's what's happening. So yeah, thank you for, uh, for connecting us to them. Um, it was really exciting and, and just really lovely to share that space with them. Fantastic. We will see you next time on the way home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.